We are, uh, we're in the second leg of our uh, series called Stretch. And um, again, the whole idea, and, and I'll just share this if you've been here the last few weeks, you know all this, but in case you're new with us, uh, the whole idea behind this series is how can I stretch myself? How can we as a family stretch so that we are a different people when it comes to spiritual things by the end of the year? Like, what is it going to take for us to, to stretch ourselves to be able to grow uh, in spiritual areas in our life? And in particular, we're looking at uh, money. We looked at the last three weeks, money and finances. We're going to kick off a marriage uh, section th- these next three weeks, and then we're going to finish it up with a family or, or your kids uh, area in the next three weeks. And with all of those, again, it's just a matter of, how can I assess currently where we are and what does it look like to grow because it's not okay to be stagnant? It's not okay just to be complacent. Everything's good. Uh, I don't think that's what we were created to do. We were created to improve and get better in our relationship with Jesus. We were created so that we might come to be like him. right? Um, and so I wanted to, to introduce it uh, today's this way because I wanted to make you aware of a resource that we have as a church that we pay for every month so that you can have it for free, okay? And it's called Right Now Media. And if you text um, right now at kccwire.com, I'm sorry, email um, right now at kccwire.com and request a code, we'll give you a code. Uh, but Right Now Media is uh, the best way to describe it. It's like a Netflix of Bible studies. And uh, you can go to Right Now Media and you can set up your account and everything. And again, it's free to you. And you can type in marriage and all these different studies from different speakers will come up that you could work through a devotional uh, with your, your spouse or with your family, for example. You can type in money and finances and different studies will come up or uh, kids and that kind of stuff. Um, so that's available to you for free. Just email right now at kccwire.com and we'll send you a code that you can hit that link uh, we'll send you a link. You can just click on it and you can set up your username and password uh, to be able to have access to that. OK, if you have trouble, let us know about that. And if you have kids or grandkids, there's a lot of stuff out there on TV that maybe some of it's good until it gets to that one part of the program. Well, they have all kinds of kids stuff on there, too, that you can feel good about your kids sitting there and watching uh, whatever the cartoon or teacher is, Buck Denver. Remember Buck Denver? We were talking about that in staff meeting the other day. Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Is he talking about John Denver? No, Buck Denver, all right? Uh, You can look it up and see. But anyway, that's available to you. We wanted to make sure that you knew that, okay? So uh, some would say that marriage is not a word, but that marriage is a sentence. Laugh here. All right. Um, (laughs) And some of you really don't think that's funny. Um, And I want to... I want to contend to you today that marriage is a sentence. Um, in fact, that it's a life sentence. Uh, and you think it's funny now, um, and you'll either be laughing more later or you'll be agreeing with me, um, that it's not just a life sentence, it's a death sentence. That's what marriage is. As we look through scripture, and I hope to be able to show that to you today. We're going to look, we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 is probably the most popular passage of scripture you would hear being preached from or spoken about at a wedding. When I do premarital counseling with couples, I sit down and we go right to Ephesians chapter 5. And Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus. And when you consider all of Paul's letters, um, Ephesus, or so Ephesians, Colossians, um, Corinthians, uh, there, there definitely must have been something going on with marriage relationships at the time in the first century because Paul addressed it in many of his letters. 
And if Paul's addressing it in his letters, you have to think that that probably was a problem at that time. And especially if someone is not a Jesus follower, right? If someone wasn't following God, had a relationship with him through Jesus, um, just like today, if somebody's either just denying that God exists or uh, at that time we're following these different gods, why in the world would they not have marriage problems? Because we all know marriage is not easy. Marriage can be very tough. I think it's God's great sense of humor when he takes a man and a woman who are already totally different and have different personalities and different parts, right? And we bring them together and we put them in the same house and say, hey, get along and figure it out, right? I mean, it's just a challenging thing. And when we have marriage, there are going to be ups and there are going to be downs in marriage. We just have to, to deal with those things. So it's no, um, no wonder why Paul was addressing marriage and relationships in his letters because there had to be difficulties at that time. Now, if you're here today and you're like, Andy, I'm single. Um, what does this have to do with me? Um, I, I believe, because we're going to be looking at scripture, that all these scriptures would also um, help when it comes to just friendships and relationships, not just marriage. Okay, so if I don't specifically dive into that or say that along the way, I apologize. But please don't ignore this teaching because it's from God's word. And again, I think it can relate to relationships, not just marriage relationships. Um, so let's look at Ephesians chapter five. And we're going to start in verse twenty one. Normally, we would start in verse 22. In fact, most of your Bibles, if you opened it up, um, when you have these different pericopes or paragraphs that has a, a title above it, the paragraph you're about to read, verse 21 is usually before the paragraph where 22 would start. But because of our current culture, I would suggest, and because people don't like verse 22, the way it hits you right in the face, People have added verse 21 to say, you know, I think verse 21 ought to be in the teaching as well. So I'm going to be a Mr. Nice Guy and we're going to go back to verse 21 and starting this. Are you ready? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here it comes. Are you ready? Brace yourself, women. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Throw tomatoes at Andy at this point. Right. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. All right. What Paul and what many people want you to point out to uh, point out. And I think it's the obvious thing for us as believers, right? Just because he says wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord does not mean that wives are doormats in the marriage relationship. Right? We know that. We know that um, that God took a, uh, took a rib out of man's side, not out of his head so that she could lord it over him and not out of his foot so that he could trample over her. But the rib is where he took that bone to create woman. This is a partnership that they're walking through life together. But they're supposed to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But then he does say, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. What I want to point out is the as to the Lord part. Because as we're going to look at what it means to be a good husband and to be a good wife, the illustration that we have from Paul, what we have from Jesus, is that it all comes down to our relationship with Jesus. And that's the example that we have. To tell us what it means to be a good husband and to be a good wife. And so Paul says, um, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord and says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. So, yes, Paul is saying, women, God created, God designed the family so that men would lead. That's what his design was. I believe very clearly in scripture that it teaches us that men were designed and created to lead their home, 
to lead their spouse, to lead their family, but also to lead the church. I believe that's what scripture teaches us. And I know that's not a very popular teaching in today's culture, but most of the women I've talked with, and granted, most of my research is done with women that are already in the church, almost exclusively, 100%, they would say, I want to be led. I want to be led. And they're looking for their husbands to do that. The problem comes in that many husbands aren't worth submitting to. They're not following Jesus. Their relationship with Jesus is not good. And so we have a wife who's trying to submit to her husband, but quite frankly, the husband is not leading her well. We'll get to that in a second. But Paul clearly stands out, uh, starts out by saying, wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. And he says, because here's God's design. That in the family, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Let's not miss that part, because again, our example of being a good husband, being a good wife, is our relationship with Jesus. This church, the head of this church, is Jesus himself. He is the head. We have a group of elders. We have a staff of five, six people. And we don't lead. We don't run the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Anything we do, any decision that we make, if it's not done under the authority of Jesus, we should not be doing it. He is our example. And in the same way, he's the example of what it looks like to have a healthy marriage. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. As we as a church submit to Jesus in everything that we do, Paul says that's the example, wives, that you have. Again, not to be a doormat, not meaning that you can't have input, not meaning that you're not walking side by side, but you look to your husband for the leadership when it comes to your home. When it comes to your home. Now he goes on to say this, husbands, love your wives. As what? Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Guys, we have a very high calling when it comes to being a husband. It's not just to love our wife well and to say, wow, you look great in that dress today. Wow, that cooking that you do for me seven days a week, three meals a day sure does taste good. That's not why we were created. We were created to love our wives as Jesus loved the church. And what did Jesus do for the church? He stretched out his arms and died for us. Right? That's the example that we have of what it means to be a husband that God has called us to do. It says that he might sanctify her. Meaning what? I have this picture um, of when Judgment Day happens, we're going to be standing there and Jesus is going to say, And Lord, uh, Father, here's the Calcasca Church of Christ. I've sanctified them. I've washed them with water. I've purified them. And they're standing before you as a Christian group of people ready to enter eternity. Now, because there's no marriage in heaven, and that's a whole other passage for another day, I can't say that this is how it's going to happen. But guys, I think our responsibility is to disciple our wives and disciple our family so well that when it comes our spouse's turn to stand before a holy God, he can look and see a purified woman that was made so by the discipleship of a husband leading his wife to understand who Jesus is. That's what every spouse, every wife should experience someday. As they stand before a holy God, pure, right before him, because their husband discipled them well and led them well. So husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, cleansing her by the washing of water with the word. 
So if you're ever wondering if Bible study or Bible reading was ever a part of marriage, it's right there in Ephesians 5. That's how the washing takes place. The cleansing takes place. We understand who God is and what Jesus wants of us. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, just like we were talking about, that she might be holy and without blemish. Have a marriage like Jesus and the church. Have a marriage like Jesus and the church. And again, if you're single, have relationships like Jesus and the church. I want to break it down in three quick things, okay? This is what we saw in Jesus. We didn't just see the birth of Jesus, which we just looked at, of course, over Christmas time. But Jesus just didn't come into the world and then suddenly went straight to the cross. There was this 30-year time frame where he grew up, but then this three years where he ministered. And again, at 30, he didn't just go right to the cross. He spent three, three and a half years ministering to his disciples so that the gospel message might be taught. And so we, too, when it comes to having a marriage like Christ has with the church, we also need to share truth. We need to share truth. Now, Dale shared a couple of these verses right on cue in John 3. We know John 3, 16, right? But verses 17 through 21, listen to this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. There's a teaching. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. There's another teaching. That's truth. Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people have loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. If we want to have a marriage like Christ in the church, we have to share truth and we have to speak truth. Discipleship comes with accountability. Discipleship between husband and wife comes with calling each other on the carpet and saying, listen, you said this. That's not what took place. Let's be open and honest in our relationship. We need to share truth. Husbands, if you're going to lead your wives well and lead your family well, you absolutely better be teaching them the truth of the gospel and of Jesus Christ, because that's who light is. And what man wants to stand up and say, no, I'd rather lead my family in darkness. That sounds like a whole lot more fun to me. Of course not. We need to lead our families in light. Secondly, lay down our life. I told you it was a death sentence, didn't I? In Romans 5, 8, it says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's one of the things that uh, is challenging about marriage and teaching about marriage, okay? Is that when you get up there and you say your I do's and you're in front of all your witnesses and you're in front of a minister and, and of course, in front of God as well. There's this commitment that you're making that says in sickness and in health and when we're poor, when we're rich and all those other words that we use. Right. I can't remember them. I've done them a hundred times. Right. And we say, do you do? And we all step, step up and we say, I what? I do. I do. There's this commitment that we're making. And that commitment is, I'm ready to lay my life down for you and put us first instead of me first. And that's what happens with marriage. Now, what happens also in marriage is this. We all screw up. Why? 
I don't know if you've looked around lately, but we're sinners. We're broken people. And I'm not giving you a license to go screw up, all right? Don't, get, don't take me wrong here. But the fact is, you're married to a sinner. And you married a sinner. And they married you. You're a sinner. I think I said that wrong, but you get the point, right? And so we're going to mess up. But just as Christ, even though we were still sinners, he died for us. Just because your husband or your wife does something, messes up, sin, we have to look and say, did I say I do or did I say I don't? If we said I do, there's got to be this journeying through those difficult situations. Now, I know every situation is different and there's a lot of bad stuff that has happened out there. All right. So, again, hear me. That when two Christian people stand before God and say, I do, I would suggest to you that you're not marrying a perfect person. You need to be ready for those moments to come and say, okay, am I in this or am I not? Third, paint a picture. Here's the picture that Jesus painted for us. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, he's talking about the end times. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he'll send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Is that not a marvelous picture that Jesus painted for his disciples to say, This is how you're going to know when the end has come. What kind of picture are you painting as a spouse for your family and for your marriage? I hope that the picture that you paint for your family as you journey through life is that one day I want us all standing around the throne of God someday singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I want you to paint that picture for your wife. Paint that picture for your husband. Paint that picture for your family. So that you know the journey that you're on as a married couple is absolutely leading to a place that regardless of what difficulties have in this life and regardless of what Satan wants to do to trip you up and send you on wild goose chases and all that kind of stuff, that you absolutely know as a family and as a married couple, we are heading to the throne of Jesus. We're leaning into Him. We're leaning into Him. Why? Because that's eternity. And we can get through whatever junk there is in this life because we know Jesus is waiting. All right, the next two sections. John 12. I've been studying John 12 in Bible Study Fellowship last week. And as I was talking with the guys, I was like, man, I love that. I'm going to use that in my message on Sunday. All right, so here's John 12. And I'm going to read a little quick. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. So six days before the Passover, what's going to happen at the Passover time? Jesus is going to die. All right. So we're heading in that direction. So six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. So he's going to a house with a guy that was crippled that Jesus healed, a guy that Jesus raised from the dead and Jesus. This is like a cool luncheon. Right. If you could say, who would you like to be at with lunch? Here's a group that you're like, man, that would be pretty awesome. Okay. And so he goes whom Jesus raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and appointed, uh, I'm sorry, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Meaning she took her hair down, which is a very humbling thing for Jewish women to do, and wiped his stinky, awful, nasty feet that had been walking through dirt and mud and feces all day, anointed them with her very expensive perfume, and then actually put her hair in it and wiped them. 
The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. I want to point out a couple of things, and I know we could go deep and have a whole two or three weeks message on just this passage of Scripture. So allow me, if you will, some lenient, uh, give me some grace here as I point out just a couple of quick things about this passage. First of all, when it comes to marriage, you need to leave no doubt. You're either in or you're out. When it comes to your marriage, when you get up there and you have all the preparation time, you have all the engagement time to make sure and to figure out and ask all the questions. But when you walk down that aisle and you two stand facing each other with the church and the preacher and, the, and God watching and all the witnesses, when you say, I do, let there be no doubt that you're all in. We see Mary's relationship. Again, we go back to our relationship. How are wives supposed to, supposed to submit to their husbands as to the Lord? And husbands are supposed to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And how did Mary love the church? How did Mary love Jesus? She took this jar of expensive perfume, broke it open, and poured it all over Jesus saying, I'm all in. She didn't have a rag or a bucket underneath catching what fell so she could put it back in because she could cash it in later. She just opened it up and anointed Jesus. Why? Because she was all in with Jesus. And when it comes to our marriage... We also need to leave no doubt. We're either in or we're out. But when we say, I do, Christian people looking at each other saying, I'm in, that means they need to be all in. What does that mean? One, no backup plan. Hebrews 10:37. the author of Hebrews, we don't know who exactly that was, said this, Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The whole book of Hebrews is about an author trying to convince Jewish people not to turn back from their faith. In the same way, I would take those words and put it on a marriage and say, we don't shrink back as married couples, as Christians, we move forward. And that means with your marriage as well. Don't be content. Don't be complacent with your marriage. Secondly, move forward. Philippians 3.14, Paul wrote this. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We don't move ahead by looking backwards. We need to move forward. And moving forward, yes, even in your marriage. Now, I look around this room, and i got to tell you, there are a lot of people here that I look and say, well, they've got a long marriage. They should be up here preaching this sermon, not Andy, right? My 31 and a half years is nothing compared to a bunch of people in this room. But I'm telling you, even if you have a marriage of 20, 30, 40, 50 years, we still don't grow complacent. We still figure out what does it look like to move forward, to be better as a married couple at the end of this year than we are right now. We have to move forward. Third, put your money where your mouth is. 1 John 3.18 says this, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In James 2.14, I'm talking about 2.14 projects that we're going to do. We're going to do one this week. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? My point is this. Don't just talk about wanting to have a better marriage. Don't just talk about the problems that you might be having with your marriage. And don't just talk about plans that you have. 
Put them into action. Put them into action. Maybe you haven't had a date night in forever. And so in 2024, you're going to say, you know what? Every month or every other week, we're going out on a date. I got a good one for you. How many of you, when's the last time that you sat out and had a family dinner together? Maybe that's what you're going to do in 2024. We're reinstituting family dinners. And we're going to pray together. And we're going to have somebody read a passage of scripture before we eat. Maybe you need to just look at your spouse and say, I'm throwing the television out the window. Because every time we come home, we sit down on our couch and we stare forward and we don't interact. And maybe it's time in 2024 to say, that thing's going into time out for a while. Because we need some face time together. What is it in 2024 you need to do to move forward? And let's start taking some action. Last uh, passage I want to share with you, John 12, 20 through 26. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip. All right. So some Greek people came. Um, They sought out Philip. Philip has a Greek name, probably from the same area. They came up to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. This is how Jesus answered them. Right. When the question was, hey, these Greek guys want to see you. This is how Jesus answered. The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Marriage is a death sentence. It's death to self. Why? Because our example is who? Jesus and the church. And what did Jesus do for the church? He laid down his life, and he died for the church. Marriage is a death sentence because when we say I do before our many witnesses and before God and before the preacher who's up there saying all the words, we're saying I do. And that means myself is dead. It's no longer about me. It's no longer about I. It's about us. It's about us. The same with Jesus. When he died, he said, it's about us. He wants to lead us as a church. But to follow Jesus correctly, we need to die to our selves. So we need to bury the old self. We need to bury the old self. Nothing and no one comes before God. Nothing and no one comes before God. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. you know this one, right? He said to them, when asked about the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Nothing can come between us and God, even our spouse. And as we have a marriage that's built on Christ and the church, we know that we put God number one. And that when we put God number one, it's going to lead us to love our spouse well. It's going to lead wives to have this heart to say, I'm going to submit to the, hus- to the leadership that my husband is laying out for us. And for husbands, as we love our wife as Christ loved the church, it means we are absolutely laying ourselves down. We are dying to ourselves so that we can disciple our wife, disciple our family to know who Jesus is. And then nothing and no one between you two. Nothing and no one between you two. Matthew nineteen six says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. That's the part I think that probably would have been the most difficult in the first century that Paul had to deal with. 
was other people getting between a married couple. And when two people are not submitting to Christ, are not loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, it leaves a lot of room for other people to come between them and tear them apart. But if God truly brought the two of you together, you're not meant to separate. You're not meant to go your separate ways. You're meant to stay together as one flesh as opposed to two. Anybody in here been married for 50 years or longer? Stand up. Yeah. How about, uh, how about 55? Oh. How about 60? 65? How many years? 65, the end of March. Awesome. Yeah, let's give him a hand. I love that, but you've got a long way to go. This is a picture of Herbert and Zelmyra Fisher. Herbert and Zelmyra Fisher. They were married, uh, Guinness Book of World Record. They were married for 86 years, 290 days. 86 years, 290 days. And they, they interviewed him, of course. Why wouldn't you interview somebody married 86 years, right? And they said, what's the secret to your marriage, right? And this is how they answered. There's no secret. There's no secret to our marriage. We just did what was needed for each other and our family. There's no secret to a happy, long marriage. It's not a secret. It's public knowledge. In fact, it's on every hotel dresser that you can find probably in the world because the Gideons made sure of it. There's probably seven of them on the shelves that you have at home. And I know they're all over our church everywhere. And they're on, if you have a smartphone, you got access to this public information about a secret marriage. Or I'm sorry, about a healthy, happy marriage. And it's not a secret. It's for everyone to see. And this is what the teaching Jesus has for us. If you want to have a happy, healthy marriage, identify with his relationship with the church. He laid his life down for the church. And because of that, we submit to him and we love him because he died for us. If we want to have a happy, healthy marriage and stretch yourselves this year, you need to look at yourself and say, listen, are we I and you and me or are we us? And where are we today? And what does it look like for us to be farther along in our journey to be like Jesus at the end of this year? The miracle of marriage is how two individuals become one. One in Christ, one in action, and are on mission. One in Christ, one in action, and are on mission together. So I put a little question there in your connection card. You can choose to answer it or not. But what's that one thing you're going to do this year? So that you don't become stagnant in your marriage. So that you don't, don't become content with right where you are. But instead, that you look to greater heights and saying, how can we be a married couple that better resembles Jesus and the church than we are today? And what's that one thing? Maybe it's a tweaking. Maybe it's a big jump you need to make because there's trouble in the household. I don't know. But what's that one thing you're going to do? Let's not just be hearers of the word. But let's be doers of the word. Amen. All right, Father, thank you for marriage. Thank you for the gift of it. Uh, what an amazing, amazing thing that you instituted for us to be able to enjoy as we journey through life. 
And Father, I pray that as we journey through life with our spouse that uh, you blessed us with, that you would help us, that you would have our marriage resemble the relationship that Jesus has with the church and that we wouldn't stop until ours looks more and more like that. May we be willing to die to ourselves and submit to you and your leadership and love our spouse well as we disciple each other so that one day, one day, Lord God, we can celebrate around the throne of God together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. All God's people said, all right, why don't you stand, let's sing.